Hello, and welcome back to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. When we launched this show back in February, I spoke at length about the intellectual shakeup happening on the right and how it was the mission of this show to highlight the players in that story. Zombie Reaganism, the school of Milton Friedman economics, the neoconservative foreign policy establishment, and even the libertarian talent pipeline in Washington, D.C., all of these things are being challenged today on the political right. Donald Trump represents a lot of things, and one of them is undoubtedly a challenge to the elite class in Washington, who no matter how many times they objectively fail, or lead us into disastrous wars, or hold up low-cost furniture at Walmart as the highest possible good for Americans, will continue to scold all of you out there for being bad people if you distrust them. When you say this, Lightweight Twitter warriors are going to inevitably hurl a photo of Donald Trump surrounded by gold furniture and supermodels at you and go, this guy is your champion against the elites? It's an uninteresting response. Even in ancient Rome, you had the populares, the political faction who, yes, lived in decadence, but who ordered their politics around the people, versus the optimates who believed government was best left to the enlightened few and ordered around keeping the masses in check. They're both elites and both completely self-interested, but wholly divided on how they think government should relate to the people's discontent. Are you angry that Main Street, Main Street shops are closing every single day while Amazon offers a free shipping on consumer products that they conveniently own? Are you angry that cities are building more apartments and single-bedroom dwellings than they are single-family homes? Are you bothered that Bank of America sifted through the accounts of their customers for activity related to Washington, D.C. around January 6th and then shared that data with the FBI without even being asked? If I had to describe the standard Beltway libertarian reaction to these things, it's indifference. There's nothing to be done here is what they typically say. It's a bit hyperbolic, but it is true that libertarians in the establishment conservative world, they shrink away from using the government for their ends. We're going to talk about all of this and get into it, but first, a quick request for you to hit that subscribe button on our show here on YouTube. You can also follow us on any podcatcher out there and do subscribe and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at RightlyAJ. My guest today thinks the American right has been asleep at the wheel and abandoned their responsibility to govern and govern well. Saurabh Sharma is the president of American Moment and the host of the Moment of Truth podcast. Saurabh, welcome. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It is really nice to have you here. Um, I have called you a couple of times now, sort of like the, um, what would be, the, the Zoomer diplomat uh, for, <laughs> for traditional conservatism. I, I, sp I speak for the Zoomers, uh, yeah. like the Lorax speaks for the trees. Your, na yeah. your name comes up a lot um, in those circles, and I think it's important to have you on the show to really get a sense of who you are and what American Moment is. But first, let's start with you. Could you tell me a little bit about your background, where you come from, how you ended up here in the swamp? Sure. Well, um, against my will is, is basically the answer. I interned here a couple of years ago and, and swore to myself like on bended knee that I would never, ever, ever come back. And eventually that softened to, okay, only if I'm married with kids will I ever come back. Eventually that softened to, okay, well, I'll you date, know. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, it's just like, and then it was like, okay, out of sheer love of country and mission, I guess I have to come up here and going to do my best to insulate myself from all of the, um, you know, 
the, the, the issues with the swamp. But um, before that, uh, I was very involved in Texas politics. I was leading an organization called Young Conservatives of Texas out there, lived in Texas for seven years, came to love it, wearing my cowboy boots right now and try to get back as, as soon as I can, um, uh, you know, every month or so. But uh, my parents still live out there. And then before that, uh, kind of lived all over the place. I lived in India for three years for my eighth, ninth, and 10th grade. Before that, in Atlanta, LA, Seattle, Lexington. Your family from India? They are. I was born in India. And when I was three months old, we moved to the United States. Okay. Yeah. So have hopped around all over the place, seen a lot of America, seen a lot of other countries as well, and um, love the country. <laughs> One thing I'm curious about with you is that in my experience, I was I was in college Republicans. I was a Republican, you know, unregistered in high school as well. It's kind of a, a conveyor belt. Uh, it's kind of like they're all made in a factory and they all are made to believe kind of the same things. It's, it's the zombie Reaganism thing, right? Like mm-hmm. it's like this is the the ultimate uh, example of conservatism. It cannot be anything else. Um, and I have noticed that's starting to decline. Uh, Trump is obviously sort of one of the big flashes in the pan for that. But Gen Zers, as far as I can tell, coming to Washington, are not really interested in those in those kind of ideas and think differently. Uh, you are somewhat of a nationalist. I'm curious how you got there. Uh, where did you sort of like get off of the conveyor belt and go in a different direction? Yeah, I think I always had sort of interesting perspectives on a lot of these issues. I had priors that would have led me to believe different things than what the mainstream conservative movement has traditionally advocated for. I was always an immigration restrictionist. I always had uh, interesting perspectives on it. Being an immigrant myself, but not in the in the porous borders direction, actually in the more restrictive direction, because I've seen, I've lived in communities where immigration has been done well and where it's been done poorly. And so I, I sort of had um, none of the sort of uh, white guilt that I think uh, permeates a lot of people when they're talking about immigration. So I didn't have that prior holding me back. And then I'd sort of, I would look at the issue dispassionately. It was something that uh, I thought was essential to good community formation was getting immigration policy right. So that immediately put me at odds with the broader conservative movement. I didn't necessarily have deeply orthodox conceptions of like, this is the only way to be conservative on economics. You must be an arch libertarian. Otherwise, you are not in good standing. So didn't have that uh, holding me back as a shackle. Um, was always um, very insistent on sort of tough on crime policies. Uh, having lived in India for my idealistic early teenage years, seeing crime, seeing corruption, it was it was deeply radicalizing. I always had a fairly robust sense so, of justice. So some of your your political instincts come from those teenage years being back home in India. India's experienced its own sort of nationalist movement of sorts. Um, immigration, crime is a big issue there. Mm-hmm. And so you formed those opinions really there and kind of solidified them and brought them here. Yeah, I think a combination of them, you know, I, I, I sort of, there's an old line in the social science, which is that you don't really know one country unless you know two. And so I came to appreciate everything we have in the United States so much more, having seen where where things can go awry, you know, specifically on things like crime. And it makes me just a lot less tolerant of, say, when our cities burned last year. Uh, and I see civilization as, as a eggshell thin coat of paint that if you chip away at it, you can't get it back easily. And so uh, it just gave me uh, priors for, uh, you know, being much more on on the order side of the spectrum of order and liberty that the conservative movement is always uh, jostling uh, at different equilibrium points on. And uh, it sort of led to me being very activated uh, around the time of the 2016 election to support the more sort of populist and nationalist agenda that President Trump ran and won on in those years. You don't like to use the populist word, right? No, I'm not the biggest fan of it. Why? Um, because I think that there are uh, 
it comes down to what I think the responsibility of leaders should be. Uh, the responsibility of leaders should be uh, to be good, to be patriotic, uh, to to be sort of noble elites that 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 look for the best uh, for the people. Uh, and that sometimes is popular, sometimes it's not. Right? I mean, is it is it populist circa 2015 for President Trump to run on a trade protection platform when the the broad populace of the Republican Party does not yet support that? Right? Leadership is built in uh, to govern. Governing and leading people um, uh, on policy issues that matter, um, that are in their best interests, is part and parcel of that. You don't you don't get from eighty percent, uh, you know, supporting free trade in the Republican Party to eighty percent not supporting free trade in the Republican Party on populism alone. You get it on on advocating for an agenda that is in their interest, in the national interest. I think that's part of the the area where I get a little confused with sort of your faction's view of responsibility to the people that. There is a duty uh, of the elite, the people here in Washington, to do what is best for the people, but also not always just follow public opinion right off the cliff, right? Like if the people don't know what is in their best interest or if the people uh, believe that steel tariffs will actually be good for them, but it ends up resulting in 75 to 175,000 jobs being lost and more steel mills being closed, um, I would think that it is then in the responsibility of the populist or the nationalist to actually be like, I know you think foreign imports are the problem here, uh, but we are not going to levy tariffs. Do you, do you kind of get where I'm coming from on that? I, I think that's entirely fair if it's in evidence, but it's not necessarily, right? And and I think that, you know, there's sort of a, a tripartite set of issues that I think distinguished President Trump when he first ran in 2015 from the rest of the field. Uh, foreign policy, ending endless wars, mm-hmm. uh, immigration, and trade, uh, and maybe more broadly considered economic nationalism, right? Um, each of those issues had a consensus opinion in sort of liberal internationalist circles um, that was at varying degrees proven wrong. Uh, you know, the uh, idea that you would see low uh, low end wage increases for the first time in a half century uh, because of the policies of, of of a restrictive trade regime, of a restrictive immigration regime, regime would have been contra everything that was coming out of elite circles in D.C. It's always a balancing act, right? That's why it can't be the rule that whatever is popular is good and whatever is good is popular, but um, I, I think it does involve looking beyond the very narrow uh, consensus on what is even a political question to begin with that exists in Washington, D.C. Yeah, kind of one of those those intersections or I guess crossroads where public opinion, maybe what is good for people and then what is right doesn't make much sense. As, as I mentioned earlier in the introduction of the episode, like the price of furniture at Walmart. Kind of the libertarian orthodoxy is to talk about trade uh, and products coming from China and go, you know, now more people can have the nice homes that they always envision. More people can get access to the consumer goods that they might not otherwise be able to afford. I myself, uh, very low income in my mid and early 20s, was able to like have an apartment that made me proud because the goods were cheap. Um, and libertarians, I think, skew towards saying, well, that is good. Mm-hmm. So we should protect that. And I feel like the other side of this argument has gone off to, well, maybe you should just buy more expensive furniture or not have it at all and buy American. Right. I mean, it's a thought experiment. Uh, you know, is is it better that your $350 TV is $325 or that a thousand factory workers in Michigan are able to, you know, provide for their family and and live a decent life doing blue-collar work uh, in an economy where at least some people need to do blue-collar work because not everyone wants to sit and do a knowledge job. Um, That is not, strictly speaking, popular because a million people may have to spend, you know, 
25 extra dollars on a TV, but it does ensure that we have a dignified economy for the broad middle of the country that doesn't leave people behind and force them into a constant cycle of sort of deracination, uh, joblessness, uh, instability that prevents family formation and that prevents their long-term thriving. What are the first things, the core principles that you aim to further with your new project, American Moment? What are the things that you view as under crisis that you are trying to save? I think that a American conservative movement and any any patriotic movement that, that seeks the betterment of this country seeks three things. Uh, strong families, a sovereign nation, and prosperity for all. Now, I'm kind of talking our shop here. That's in our mission statement. That's how we frame uh, what our ends are. And it's it's very much framed in terms of ends. I think that there's a focus on um, abstract principles to our detriment a lot on the conservative side of the spectrum. Uh, when in reality, uh, I think like that- what? Like what's kind of one of the abstract principles that you think just doesn't make any practical sense? I, I think that, you know, if you look at the traditional mission statement of organizations founded in, say, the 1980s, there, there's usually a couple of lines, right? It's, uh, it's limited government, fiscal response, Responsibility, a strong national defense, and personal responsibility. You know, sure. so I think those are sometimes the, the four that are thrown around. Limited government. Um, I support limited government. I, I don't want government to be larger than it needs to be. However, um, there is not contained within limited government any value assessment about what is good and bad. Uh, you can have a government that is, strictly speaking, the same size, that spends the same amount of money, but does radically different things in terms of providing for the common good. And so I think it's very important to to ask deeper questions and to actually engage in public policy beyond less is more. Less is more is a good aphorism. It's, it's good folk wisdom, but it doesn't apply to, you know, governing a transcontinental empire, which is what the United States is. Do you like to refer to America as an empire? Because I often, I, when I've listened to interviews of you, you use the word regime a lot. <laughs> and that doesn't happen much in American politics. People in this town use the word administration. <laughs> but you always refer to whoever is in charge as the regime. And that feels like it is part of your worldview. I, I think so. I mean, uh, I think that uh, the nature of the the state at this point in time, the nexus between corporate America, uh, you know, the private sector, uh, cultural institutions in Hollywood and academia, and the formal organs of political power like the government under the Democratic Party coalescing into, into an entity that works in tandem, it, it's not sufficient to call that the state or the government. I, I think... I think the regime is much more accurate. Time magazine did this incredible, uh, like, you know, how we did it profile um, about uh, the election of, of 2020, uh, 2020 uh, where they talked about how uh, political party elites uh, in the Democratic Party, uh, the leaders of tech companies, private sector organizations, all uh you know, worked together and, and they, they're putting a positive value assessment on it. I think that there's something interesting to be discussed there, but how we did it. Yeah. How, how, how we <laughs> this did was it. was a team effort here. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's not, that is not government. That, that is something beyond government. That is, that is a regime. And, and that's, that's, I think, a, a useful title to describe this, this sort of nexus that exists between all of these domains of power in American life working in tandem against the great middle of the country. And you want to tinker with the power structure as it is, change the people who operate within it. American Moment is not a think tank necessarily. It's not developing white papers. It's developing people. Um, 
my understanding of DC, I've been here since 2015. Uh, there is a fellowship and some sort of right-wing paid internship opportunity on every single corner of town. You just trip over them everywhere in Arlington. Um, there's tons of opportunity, but there is a little bit of a gap that I think you have identified in terms of filling government jobs. Do I have that correct? Yeah, and I think it's downstream of the ideological priors that the Republican Party and the conservative movement have had for the last 50 years. It's very hard to convince people uh, who are motivated primarily by hatred of government to engage in long-term institution building with and around government. We talked about that last week. I was with a couple of uh, other fellow libertarians, and I, I just had to vent for a minute. I was like, you know, what if this has all been a mistake since the Tea Party, uh, that we've just spent, you know, all of these years railing against government and getting people ginned up about it working well, and now it doesn't work well, and we're mad and surprised as if it doesn't serve some sort of good. Right. I, I think that there's, there's two axes that matter at all times, right? There's uh, what does government do, and then does it do it well? Uh, and, and, and Democrats have an answer to both of those things. Liberals have an answer to both of those things. So far, uh, Republicans and conservatives have only had an answer to one of those things. They say government should do less. The problem is, is that if that is the overwhelming ideological consensus within your political movement, it's going to be very hard to accrue and attract the sort of talent that is needed to actually govern in a sustainable and a competent way. And, and, Put aside all of the ideological disagreements that we have, I think the American people fundamentally deserve good governance, whoever's in power. And they don't get that in often cases uh, when conservatives are in power and there's an especial, special gap when it comes to uh you know, conservatives of my persuasion who who have these more nationalist tendencies, there's almost no, uh, you know, the term state capacity is thrown around. There's no institutional capacity or state capacity to actually govern in that way because it's a self-selection problem. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, we, with like college campus bias. Right. And uh, uh, and teachers in public schools. Just people naturally drift towards certain kinds of jobs. It's not like they aren't hiring conservatives. It's that, like, for so many years, conservatives didn't go into academia, and now the gates are kind of closed. And then you have to find a way to remedy that problem. I think government and bureaucracy might be an example of where that persists. Right. And and here's the calculation that I like to put in front of people, is that even if you decimated, literally in the traditional term of the word, one-tenth the administrative state, there are still thousands of political appointments and uh, and and GS scale, you know, federal bureaucracy appointments that every president needs to make. And the question is, is that are we going to essentially give up all of that as conservatives? Are, are we going to say, no, we're going to put our fingers in our ear, go la 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 la, pretend these don't exist and don't really build the pipeline in order to fill these positions with people who have the best interests of the country in mind? And that's kind of where American Moment was born, was out of your discontent with the people who filled the Trump administration, who you view it as being derailed by. Right. I think that there was a, there was a, a basic dichotomy, which was that um, if you were competent, uh, you were completely contra the president's interests and the interests of the voters that he represented. Uh, and if you were aligned, chances are you didn't have a lot of experience or competence in actually navigating the federal bureaucracy. And so your effectiveness was limited. That problem is not going away. It's going to continue to exist for every conservative president for the next 50 years. We have a choice. Are we going to solve it 
Or are we going to essentially go to the American people and say, all we can offer you is a lesser of two evils, and you're going to have not necessarily well-managed government, um, but it's at least going to protect you from those Democrats. I think that's a raw deal. The, the part of this that I, I guess I don't understand about responsibility for, say, the Trump years not going well, like as if it was some kind of failure because he didn't get reelected. Uh, we had Betsy DeVos in the Department of Education. She reigned in Title IX. Um, we were able to pass, I know you don't like tax cuts as like an ultimate good, but like Trump's agenda of tax cuts was passed to Supreme Court justices. Things happened in the Trump years that were good for conservative aims. Um, but you talk about Trump's administration as if it was only stifled and that he was the guy who was victimized by these people. Like, is he a wrecking ball or does he just have no know-how of how to govern and how to build an administration? Because I don't think he can be both. Yeah, I think it's important to think about the, you know, the, the house that Trump built, as it were, right? Um, as someone who comes from my perspective on these issues, um, the, what I view as the more traditionally conservative ways of thinking about issues like trade, immigration, and so on, it's important to rewind back to the 2014, 2015, you know, say post, uh, Romney, uh, you know, post-mortem era. Uh, there was no room for dissidents on any of these issues. If you questioned the Iraq war, you were laughed out of town. Um, if you thought that our immigration regime, legal and illegal, was fundamentally irresponsible and damaging to American workers, you were considered a crank or a racist. Uh, if you thought that our trade regime was, was really bad for the country, you were considered, um, you know, uncultured on economics. Trump came in and he created a wide open space through sheer force of will to actually change the consensus on these issues. But it is necessarily the same Trump that that did not know all of the, the pieties and the structure and the details of how Washington works that could have had the wherewithal to be that disruptor in the first place. There is no version of someone who perfectly understands the Washington bureaucracy and how to use it that also had those views because the entire apparatus had iced out people like that for two generations. And so I have a hard time blaming him. Uh, instead, I'm grateful for the opportunity that's been created, and I want to make sure that we don't make this mistake again on the personnel side. I don't mean to do a hard pivot here, but I guess I'm going to because you mentioned an irresponsible immigration regime. Is your being here and your family being here part of a irresponsible immigration regime? Was that a mistake of policy? I think that, you know, personalizing these things is is always where, uh, you know, policy goes wrong. Um, it's not that there is any particular person who should or should not be here. It's that an immigration policy for the United States should reflect the interests of existing American citizens. Now, I, I believe in a broad uh, restriction of the of the overall number of legal immigrants admitted to the United States every year. And suppose in uh, 1990, I guess it would have been six when my father first came here, uh, if if that number had been lowered and, and he had not made the threshold, um, is that is that somehow an, an indictment against my family or, or- Right now, the only way to get into this country from India in particular is like by marrying somebody. The wait, the wait is so long. And I don't understand how the, the commitment to technological primacy in the 21st century, which is one of the goals of your organization, with like closing the door on India, like sorry to stereotype, but like those seem in conflict with each other. Yeah, I think all of public policy is a balancing act, right? There, there is no 
there is no set of public policies that have all good and no bad. There are trade-offs and everything. I mean, uh, we get this criticism when it comes to uh, the question of geostrategic competition with China as well. People mm-hmm. say, well, you want to engage in competition with China. Uh, why don't you basically create an open immigration regime with Hong Kong? It's like, no, um, there, there, are, there are balanced goods that have to be measured in public policy. And when it comes to what I think uh, the squeaky wheels are um, in, in the American economy, in, in American society more broadly, uh, immigration to solve a problem of deep technological malaise in the United States is, is a band-aid. It does not solve the root problem, and it carries externalities that are very damaging to our culture, to the ability for, for more low-wage immigrants and high-wage immigrants alike, or sorry, more low-wage uh, Americans and high-wage Americans alike to actually move up the ladder of opportunity. Uh, the real solution to technological advancement would be taking a good hard look at what the institutions that are responsible for crafting um, uh, and and shaping the brightest people in America are actually sending them to do. And as of right now, you get sent to do one of two things. Uh, either make an extra quadrillionth of a cent on a micro stock transaction in Wall Street or to monetize the attention of seven-year-olds at a tech company in Silicon Valley. That is not the way to be taking the highest IQ Americans and and putting their talents to work. I'd much rather uh, have a system that that directed them towards the hard sciences, towards engineering, towards biology, towards chemistry. And we don't have that right now. One of the things that I have never, and I don't, I don't like bringing like studies to the table and throwing stats because everybody has their statistics and everybody has think tanks of which they always go to to get counter numbers. My understanding of immigration and particularly like technology jobs is like you grow the pie when you bring in people who have specific skills and aptitudes to start businesses. You grow the amount of opportunity. And the way that you look at immigration, I feel like could be read as you cannot have a single immigrant in this country until every person who lives on the streets and in destitution is working and has their needs taken care of. Like, for the good of all Americans. That's very specific. And like, it seems like a great ideal. But like, literally, if you view it as a zero-sum game between immigrants and every American citizen— I feel like we are limiting the amount of what is possible. Like you came here, right? And then you started an organization. <laughs> Jobs. <laughs> it's, a, it's a silly example, but you get my point. Like there's the idea that either the pie grows or the idea that it's static and shrunk by immigrants. Yeah, I, th- I think that there's there's probably an intersection point at which there's there's diminishing returns on, on what you can do for the native population. And so then the question becomes on net, uh, what does a, a particular immigrant or, or a particular immigration program bring to the table in the United States, at which point there's not only economic concerns, uh, but there's also cultural concerns. There's, um, you know, societal concerns more broadly. Uh, you know, the way that we frame immigration at American Moment is that immigration must be restricted in order to promote national solidarity and the economic well-being of mm-hmm. all Americans. Former matters as well. What you have happening uh, in, in in border counties um, and, and even kind of moving ever more northward in, in states good. like Texas, in, in states like Arizona, it's not good, but but there's a specific portion of it that I want to zero in on, um, which is that the uh, children of immigrants in these communities um, that uh, have extraordinarily high populations of foreign-born immigrants have an extraordinarily hard time being taught in English language. Mm-hmm. And um, if you don't share a language with your fellow citizens, you don't really share a polity. If you can't community communicate with them, you don't really have a country. You have sort of 
different countries within one nation. That's a recipe for social dysfunction. Uh, it's a it's a recipe for a very dangerous sort of politics. Uh, and a responsible immigration regime recognizes um, that any complex system uh, can only take so much rapid change at once. And so we have to be measured, we have to be responsible, and we have to be a little bit, I would say, kind of bloodless and thinking about it. it again emotions run very high on the immigration issue in the United States you know Emma Lazarus wrote a poem once and therefore we must have open borders when in reality I mean extremely technologically advanced countries like South Korea like Japan have never had immigration regimes even remotely resembling what we're doing now and neither does China um, we can have technological advancement we can have social cohesion without uh, a dramatically massive amount of immigration and and also there's another side to this which is that our immigration regime has deep consequences for the countries with which, uh, from which immigrants come. Um, uh, my co-founder, Nick Solheim, he was a missionary in Honduras as a kid, and there uh, were entire communities where uh, the entire population was old people, mothers, and children. What's missing there? Fathers, because all the fathers had gone up to the United States in order to take advantage of what they saw as economic opportunity. And there was a serious social dysfunction that was going on in these communities because uh, it's a pretty, you know, normal conservative talking point to say that you need mothers and fathers in a community for it to be healthy. The alone with the gangsters. That's, that's right. all that's left. That's right. And so, uh, you know... Uh, I think that sometimes people can be a little bit dishonest about uh, how much this actually animates their thinking, but I think a, a truly humanitarian approach to immigration recognizes that, uh, especially in the haphazard system we have right now, we often tear families apart through the incentives we create with our immigration system, and we remove uh, reformers, builders, uh, and 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 sort of uh, the engines of, of societal growth from countries that need them most. The national solidarity part is maybe where I go go in a different direction from you. Because I, I agree with you, and I, I reject open borders ideology. I think it's it's ludicrous um, and would tear this country apart by and large. The area where I, I don't agree is the solidarity part, that our culture, families, social fabric, neighborhoods aren't made better by people from foreign countries. People talk about you know Hispanic culture a lot, Latino families, and whether or not they are Christian uh, versus non-believers, and whether or not they have children and come here to work, uh, live and play happily. I, I mean, honestly, I view myself as having more in common with my Venezuelan neighbors who I have to talk to via Google Translate if I ever want anything than I do some San Francisco single mom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, those kind of values are incredibly different. Mm -hmm. And if those people are procreating in Brooklyn and San Francisco, I'm just like, you know, maybe that's not the best idea. We should bring in some people who actually support the American ideal. Why don't you agree with that? Like, why don't you view people coming in from out of the country as maybe being more cohesive for American values than people who are born here? Because unfortunately, you don't just bring... Uh an immigrant over when you when you allow someone to come to the country, you you bring an entire lineage of people over, right? And so, for the same reasons that you feel like you are not, uh, you know, uh, that aligned with the San Franciscoite or the Brooklynite, um, is the same reason that their children and grandchildren won't feel that much like you either. Um, our school system, our educational system, and our society more broadly right now is incapable of actually creating um, patriots right now. It seeks to teach people to hate their country. And so uh, 
it may be the case that uh, the first generation immigrant from Venezuela or from India has social conservative priors. But as someone who has been deeply enmeshed in sort of second generation immigrant culture my entire life, um, their kids won't. It wears off. Yeah, it wears off. And, and if anything, it, it's, it's more susceptible as well because uh, living in a society that teaches uh, anyone who's not white that they are a victim uh, and, to, and that they are surrounded by white supremacy that seeks to eliminate them from all sides uh, gives them a chip on their shoulder. And they learn uh, to hate their, their fellow countrymen. Uh, and, and especially if we haven't assimilated them properly to sharing, uh, to feeling a part of the broader economy, which is, is something we tend not to do on the lower end of the immigration scale or even on the higher end. Um, and, and, uh, you know, if there's language barriers, if there's, uh, communal barriers, they've only ever grown up around other immigrants that, that we're, we're creating citizens in full who have fully activated political rights, who hate the country and are taught by our education system and our broader culture that they should hate the country. Uh, and so you're going to have way more of those same people that you don't feel like you share values with in liberal cities. Um, uh, because, Again, uh, in, in much the same way that uh, the corporations that uh, underwrite our porous immigration regime uh, say, you know, there's a joke that you know, I, like I, Google, right? Or right. Well, I mean, in, in all cases, you know, they 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 support immigration because they want a pair of hands, and it's like, oh, there's this this worker that comes with it. Uh, in much the same way, um, whereas you may see a worker or or a person in a frozen moment of time. Really, you have to think about their kids, their grandkids, their great grandkids, and and how they will relate to the American nation, and whether or not they'll feel a part of it. And that's something um, that I think we're much worse at as a country than we once were. Um, I think America was much more capable of assimilating people 50 years ago than it is today. And before we fix that, um, I think it's irresponsible to have such a, a poor. What broke in the assimilation machine? I think it's it's what broke more broadly in American society, the complete um, disillusion of any sense of national self-confidence, any sense of identity, any sense of, of America being good, Americans being good. Uh, it, we essentially ceded uh, all of our cultural institutions and educational institutions to civilizational arsonists who uh, think that Howard Zinn's history of the United States is the history of the United States that is definitive, that is historical, uh, anything else is propaganda. If that's the recipe, then then it's very hard to to unwind that without that's major a, reform. That's a homegrown canon, and it's not going to go anywhere. I mean, there is no there is no government bureaucratic solution, perhaps outside of the Department of Education, to deal with these things, other than bringing people from the outside who believe in the canon and actually want to teach their children about it. I, I just it seems like the hard-headed approach to the problem, um, sort of like, what is what did Trump say about immigration? He was like, we got to shut all this down until we figure out what's going on. Yeah, that's right. And like, <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's basically what this is, yeah. is we do not have a grasp on the culture. We don't have a grasp on the country. We just need to shut it all down until we figure it out <laughs> and tear each other's heads off. Well, I mean, again, I think that uh, the, the, the economics of the situation and the culture of the situation are deeply tied together. I think that uh, if you were to restrict immigration, uh, I, I believe in market mechanisms. You would increase uh, the demand for uh, the marginal workers' labor in the United States. Uh, they would have more, more purchasing power as a worker. They would be able to have an easier time getting married and raising a family. Uh, raising families and getting married tends to make people more conservative. Those people will then go on to be community leaders to reform their education system from the inside and to rebuild an America that is capable of assimilating newcomers. Uh, I think it's it's all cyclical. Um, 
pauses in immigration are wholly, uh, uh, you know, represented in American history. We've done it many times before yeah. to great effect. It's been very good. Uh, one, one could even argue that the, the, the sort of Camelot of, of, of the post-war era was in part a byproduct of a previous, a previous immigration pause that allowed for, uh, you know, this, this, uh, entire generation of, of mostly Eastern and Southern European immigrants to properly integrate into the country, uh, and then, uh, to, to be part of the greatest war machine that the world had ever seen. As far as where American moment sort of fits into the nexus of new groups on the right with a different kind of goal, one thing I thought was interesting about your website, um, AmericanMoment.org, right? That's correct. You can go check it out. Uh, so I, I scanned through the whole thing, was kind of trying to get a sense of it. One thing I never saw throughout was the typical right of center mention of the founders or the Constitution returning to anything, nothing about standing athwart history, shouting stop, only go. Mm -hmm. Is that purposeful? Because when I spend time with traditional conservatives, the trads here in D.C., and once they're about three, four drinks in, they always tend to over-imbibe those traditional conservatives. Uh, they start shouting about monarchy. and they, <laughs> It's what they do. And they, they try to pass it off as a joke. The yeah. trads always talk about monarchy as if they're yeah, joking. Yeah. But they're not joking. Mm -hmm. I think they're telling the truth. They view the constitutional order of the United States mm -hmm. as a mistake. And I got the impression, looking at your website and looking at American Moment, that that is enmeshed in there somewhere as well. No. Only going forward, nothing to preserve. No, not at all. Um, I, I think uh, the reason you probably didn't see any mention of the founding as the such founding. is because I think that that is an anachronistic term that doesn't really mean anything. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have a hard time believing that one can create a conception of something called the capital T, capital F founding when you know, five years after it, the U.S. Congress, where a lot of the founders were, passed the Alien and Sedition Act. Um, I'm interested in founders, individual founders that we see as deeply consonant with our values. When when we are building our set for Moment of Truth, you will always see busts of Washington and Hamilton, who are some Hamilton's of my favorites <laughs> of the founders. There's there's a fantastic piece, um, I believe it's called American Nationalists, that was written by uh, Yoram Hazoni and Ophir Hyvri at the American Conservative last year, yeah. uh, that talks about Washington and Hamilton and the American system of economics. Um, the long tradition of, of this sort of, um, you know, industrialist, um, sort of developmental state posture um, that, that I share on economics and its roots all the way back to the founding. When it comes to issues of foreign policy, realism and restraint, looking to John Quincy Adams and George Washington's uh, second inaugural, um, you know, the, we see roots for every part of what we believe in the history and the tradition of the United States. And we do not want to abandon that at all. Um, look, I, I think more plebiscitory democracy is not an end to be pursued in and of itself. Uh, I think that, you know, again, wholly within the American system was the idea that the senators were appointed, uh, not elected. Um, you know, how much democracy uh, in terms of a prudential question we have in the United States um, is a separate question than whether or not we should continue the Republican form of government, which I believe that we should. Because you don't want to do away with elites. You want new elites. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me a little bit about your view of that and how you actually get a better elite and how American moment is going to produce those people? 
Because sure. this town works on people <laughs> in a bad way. Yeah, I, in fact, that goes to a, a theory of mine, which is that I think ideas only get people so far. Ideas are, are powerful to the extent that they are held by people. Um, and, and, and you need to pay very close. You can have the best ideas in the world, but if, you know, if a think tank writes a white paper and there's no one to read it, did it really write anything? <laughs> uh, and, and realistically, how decisions are made, um, you know, if you're in the situation room at the White House and there's an immediate decision to be made on, should we get into a land war with Iran because they, you know, knocked down one of our drones? The question isn't, well, what did so-and-so think tank write about our geostrategic position with Iran? Let me go consult Wikipedia. It's, what are the instincts of the people in the room? What are their priors? What are their first principles? What are the first things they're looking to protect in civilization? Um, my theory on elites is as follows. Every civilization since the beginning of time has had elites. Hierarchy is endemic to the human condition. And so if we want a functioning civilization, a thriving civilization, we have to pay very close attention to who those people are. It doesn't mean that I am an elitist. I just believe that elites exist. And I think that the current crop that we have in the United States in every domain of American life are terrible. Um, they, they, they have no conception of the common good. They have no classical conception of the good. They, they aren't really that competent. It's, it's all really kayfabe and, and not really well constructed and, and is, is purely papered over, uh, by, uh, by power and by institutions that cover for them, uh, at their, you know, earliest mistake. Like a, a great example that I just love to think about is, I don't know if you saw recently, Pete Buttigieg, um, you know, got out of his suburban <laughs> two blocks away from the Department of Transportation to ride yes. an electric bike to work. Yes. And the only reason we knew about it was because, um, you know, some Twitter user with an iPhone caught a picture of it. But the New York Times would have never reported on that. That sort of kayfabe, the fakeness and the silliness of our elite class is only uh, concealed in part because all of our elite institutions conspired to conceal it as much as how really possible. How is American Moment going to filter out the bad from the good and pursue some kind of virtue for the people who are entering the bureaucracy and going into the gears of government? I mean, because in my experience, uh, DC and organizations which place people in jobs, it's like flame and here come the moths. And I don't view virtue as being something that is going to be built here. It's going to be built out there in the real world. And then hopefully you are acting as a filter to then find them the right place. If our country is unvirtuous, our country is going down the, t the pipes, I, I don't see how your organization fixes that yeah. by just doing job placement. Yeah, look, I mean, we... we, we we are not the be all end all of anything. And, and I even sometimes get in trouble with using the term, you know, creating new elites because, uh, it's kind of grandiose sounding, but it, it comes down to what my definition of, of what is inclusive. <laughs> well, it comes, it comes down to what my conception of what is inclusive yeah. of elites. And, and I think even a, a staff assistant, which to those not in the know is an entry level position on Capitol Hill pays less than $35,000 mm -hmm. a year in some places, not glamorous work. You, you usually, you know, mail letters, uh, give people tours in cap uh, on the Capitol. That's about yeah, it. They'll tell you they're yeah. not part of the elite. Well, yeah. but it's my contention yeah, that they are, they are. because um, A, at that moment in time, they are because they're more likely to spend time around a congressman and the people who lead our government than 99.99% of Americans. So that alone, but then also the career trajectory that they're on can put them in enormous power. Absolutely. I mean, you had people in the Trump administration who were barely in their late 20s that were deputy assistant secretaries that had serious influence in the federal bureaucracy and were moving power forward. And so um, we are vigilant 
on specifically the the entry valve for personnel in D.C. because we recognize that you never know who's going to become the next Stephen Miller who's advising the president every single day or or the next Kellyanne Conway or the next, you know, so-and-so. Um, and so, uh, you know, we take a systemic approach, which is that we're going to try to bring as many good people who share our values, who are tactically aligned, who are careful, who understand and have a mind for the sort of work that we have in mind uh, and who are of good character to Washington, D.C. And that is a is a very narrow slice of the pie of elites in America more broadly. It's a humble mission. Again, if, if I bring 500 people to bear the next time a conservative is elected to the White House and say these are 500 trustworthy, aligned people who have a vision for uh, what the future needs to look like, um, I would have done my job. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly narrow mission. Um, I'm under no illusion that we can remake all of the American elite, but there needs to be parallel, nimble, small projects like this in every domain of American life in order to make a meaningful ground shift. Um, and some of it's going to come from leadership from the top. It's going to come from people like President Trump or whoever the next figure like him is, people who singularly command the national imagination and are capable of moving in Overton windows so rapidly that the need for um, a new elite is, is, is created. I want to back up to the existential problems that we face as a society. You are, like me, I think someone who looked at the David French v. Sorab Amari (laughs) battle with a lot of interest uh, and a lot of indignation. Uh, So this was a fight between two, uh, let's just call them intellectuals, right? Uh, About drag queen story hour and whether or not it was the duty of a locality to ban such a thing and make sure that drag queens are not reading books to children in local libraries. And I got a video to show you because uh, it is something along the lines of horrific. Let's roll it. We all need this confidence in life. We all need this confidence in life. It really hurts. It really hurts to watch. Yeah. What are you going to do about this? Uh, and what do any of us do about something like that? Um, what is the good? I, I think... I think, first of all, recognizing that that is not a blessing of liberty is the first step. Uh, and recognizing that at a certain point, it is the responsibility of government to foster public virtue. Um, this is something that was never alien to conservatives. Even, uh, Can I ask you a quick question please. before you continue? How do you define virtue? Because you know the, the, the Stoics, they all fought for uh, generations over mm-hmm. what virtue even is. How mm-hmm. do you define it? Um, look, I'm not a philosopher, but I, I, I think that there is a classical tradition that we can tap into. Human beings have been thinking about virtue, about common good for millennia. Um, and it is a particularly modern sort of heresy that we've abandoned all of that. You know, just to said, you know, those people didn't know what they were talking about. It's a, a complete abandonment of the classical tradition, classical conceptions of the good, um, usually like overlaid with some combination of like maximal liberalism being an end in and of itself, i.e. choice. And then also, uh, you know, uh, some, some level of, of, of scientism, you know, the idea, well, the science, capital S, capital uh, C, I, E, and, C S N C E maybe I spelled that right um, is is what's saying something and 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 that uh, all ties together to create all of the sort of you know pathologies of our modern time the, the idea that something like that is is okay is something that would have been totally alien to 
everyone from like 50 years ago to 2000 years so ago. So is there is the, is the government response to that kind of thing a reactionary response like this is illegal you can't do this to a child or have them out in Times Square doing this who are the parents we're going to take this child away or is it the thing that comes before it? It's both. I mean look you have to clip weeds and like whatever that is stop it right now. But also it requires being vigilant and being more than just reactive in the long term. A great uh, parallel issue that I like to talk about uh, when it comes to something like this is big tech. Um, obviously, like big tech is a problem now. The president of the United States was removed from the biggest social media platforms. His voice was heavily damaged. Um, but it's funny, now that a lot of Republicans and conservatives are talking about big tech, I'm actually less interested in it as an issue because now I'm thinking, What's the next thing that Americans and ordinary patriots are going to do? Section 230 is very one year ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Section 230 is very four years ago, actually. <laughs> Excuse me, yeah, four but, years. But now we have to be vigilant. Like Bank of America, uh, uns- uh, you know, unprompted was giving I the information that. of yeah. people who uh, flew to and from Washington, D.C. in and around January 6th to the federal government. Like, is what's coming next uh, the inability for someone who disobeys a particular woke piety from being able to purchase a home or or open a bank account or transact in fiat currency. We have to be vigilant about what comes next. And that means being more than just, you know, playing whack-a-mole with particular bad things that we see in society. It's recognizing that proactively shaping a virtuous, a good, uh, a, a well-functioning society requires the participation of, of conservatives in public policy, which if, if there's one way to sum up what the conservative consensus over the last 25 years has been, it's that conservatives don't believe in public policy. Well, and, and conservatives to the child twer- twerking in, in Times Square have largely embraced the idea of liberty is uh, do no harm, right? That uh, what goes on in Times Square and in New York is not the problem of people living in Georgia, vice versa, and we want everybody to go hands off. It's the David Frenchism thing, which is you know, if you want New York to be, if you want Georgia to be Georgia, you need to let New York be New York, but New York never rests. And New York never stops at trying to spread uh, its diseases out to the rest of the country. And so I, I take your critique that those things will always continue to prop- propagate themselves. I, I just worry about the bureaucrats, the faceless kind of yes men people that you might want to put into government to implement those things, they're only there for so many years, and then the next people get the the same ride they got, the same tools that you give them. The power the power structure is changing every four years in this country, and it makes me nervous. It is, but I think the contrapositive is an important question. Uh, is the left you know is is the left disarming as well, or are we unilaterally disarming? Um, you know, we have Bishop Garrison at the Department of Defense right now, essentially acting as a political commissar, rooting out quote unquote white supremacy, which basically translates to did you vote for Donald Trump in the military wherever he can find? Um, my approach to politics uh, and tactics may have been different if it was at all an evidence to me that the left is willing to participate in a cooling down of political acceleration. But they're not. They're very interested in power. They're very interested in ensuring long-term propagation of their political interests, and they're willing to use government to do it. And a norm is only inviolate so long as it's not the immediate barrier in front of them in progress. This is my my critique of, 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 you know, anyone who, 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 you know, dreams of the halcyon days of like the original ACLU and when the left was for campus free speech. Um, 
you know, the, the, the modus operandi of the left is that, you know, we, we, we advocate for freedom, uh, when it suits our interests because, uh, that is their principle talking to, to more rights oriented people. And then we take away their freedom when we have power because it is our principle. That is the path. They'll start with what they see as the governmental barriers to capital pre-progress. And then after that, they'll actively use government power to ensure capital P progress. And that is the trajectory. And, and sometimes it's not within one generation. Sometimes it's even different figures. And so how do you go from an MLK to, to someone like a Bishop Garrison? It, it happens in successive generations because, um, the, the gains made before were never enough. And, and that's how you get, you know, uh, the, 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 the ideologies that rule America today. We're going to table it here, and I want to ask you about something else entirely. So at the end of every show, we like to step back a little bit from the uh, the weighty issues and just talk about some good news uh, and give everyone an opportunity to cleanse the palate. So Rob, anything happy on your mind or in the news that you're looking at this week? Um, you know, we're obviously thriving at American Moment, so that's always a thriving. A, yeah, that's that's always um, a having happy hours. A, <laughs> that's right. You know, it's it's always a um, a white pill, as the kids say. Um, and and I'm really enthused because I think that um, in this moment, especially, there's lots of young people, positive young people, that are interested in sort of constructively, uh, you know, putting their hat in the ring be part of the solutions that um, we're advocating. And so it's just, I mean, I, I spend every day, you know, I open my inbox and there's still you know, dozens of people who we have yet to talk to that want to get involved in this. Work. And that's just, it's extremely gratifying. Uh, I guess, you know, maybe a, a less, uh, you know, uh, work-related one would be, um, uh, I think, in parallel, uh, you know, we talked about Gen Z earlier. Yeah. I think that a lot of members of Gen Z look at the life that uh, millennials and even some Gen Xers led of sort of the uh, careerism at all costs you know, at 40, maybe take a peek over at getting married after you have five cats and an SSRI addiction living in a pod in New York. And they're like, hmm, that's not a life to lead. I'd like I, my own. There, there's an aspect of Zoomerism I, I really appreciate. Uh, things made by hand, craft yeah. culture, yeah. Uh, handmade watches. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and this is maybe a little bit too far, but uh, we went to Target the other week. My wife wanted to get uh, something to wear for a dinner that we were going out to. We could not find a single thing that was pretty and summery in Target that did not look like it came from Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I knew that prairie culture was like catching on with Zoomers, yeah. but it was everything in the darn store. Yeah. It's like, and well, then even beyond consumer preferences, right? I mean, I think that it's not a majority, but there is a significant sect of young people that are like, I'm going to get married young. Yeah. Don't have kids. I mean, my my co-founder Nick just got engaged. You know, um, uh, it's uh, it's the sort of thing I'm seeing everywhere. I mean, I all at once it seems like like this is the year of my life that all of my peers like decided they were going to start getting married. I went to the first wedding of like a peer last year, uh, and now he has a kid, and and now like I have four this year, and yeah. so um, that's really exciting too because that's I when think, life gets good. Yeah, I mean that's that shows you that civilizational renewal is possible, right? Um, because uh, that is, I mean, strong families uh, come first for a reason and having families is a good first step to strong families. And so um, that's always exciting to watch. Um, uh, and and I see it everywhere, not just in kind of DC, young conservative land, but also just completely uh, apolitical people. They're, they're making an active choice that, especially I think this may be one silver lining of COVID. Um, I knew a lot of people who got shotgun married because they were like, why do we need to spend $25,000 on a wedding when we can put that as a down payment on a house? Yep. That's exciting. 
I love it. Uh, I'll share mine. I slept for the first night in nearly a year for about 12 hours on wow. Saturday this past weekend. <laughs> Uninterrupted, hard sleep because... I finished my book. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> I've been, uh, yeah, I, so I've got a book coming out uh, in October of this year. Um, it is called How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons on Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. Your boy loves Star Wars. That's um, so I started this book. Ooh, I started the outline over a year ago, and I've been writing the book hard for about six months. And when you are writing a book, you just can't sleep. What was the what was the approach? So I, I think uh, once Matt Iglesias had a great uh, piece of recommendation, which is that like every day, like write only so many words and then like stop literally on the word um, that that you can write up to. That way you'll always have like a sentence to finish when you start up the next day. I've and never that heard keeps that. You, um, so like what was your strategy to actually manage it? Because I'm, I'm a procrastinator. Yeah. I, I have a hard time. Like this is the one thing that terrifies me about ever writing a book is like, I would treat it like a college school report and I'd like mm -hmm. do it the night before. You can't do with 800 pages. So I, I really like that Iglesias advice and I wish I had heard that. I would say that just like you, you don't get like book deals until you've got like an outline of the book. So you have to chart every chapter, mm -hmm. what's going to be in every chapter. And then you kind of have a, a nice guideline. So those are like high school essay rules. You do, yeah. you do the framework. The first. hamburger. Yeah. But you, you have to set time to actually write the book. Mm -hmm. If you think you're going to be able to fit it into your normal life, you are wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so I started my days at 4 a.m. Wow. Um, for, for the past six months, uh, every day at 4 a.m., get up before my daughter, get up before my wife and watch the sun, um, sun come up with my book. And that comes at a cost, which is when you go to sleep at night, you know you have to get up at four and you can't turn your mind off and you just don't sleep well. Mm -hmm. um, but you get that dedicated time every single day. The problem I found in doing that was that when you have morning writing time, when you come back to it the next day, you got to read what you wrote because you're yeah. like half asleep. Yeah, you've had 20 <laughs> hours of activity since you can't, you yeah. can't remember. Yeah. yeah, you come back to it and you're like, oh, that's a mess. None <laughs> of that even makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it can really prolong the writing process, which is why you got to take a vacation and ride right. on the vacation. That's right. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you, Sarab. Thank you for watching this week of Right Now with Stephen Kent. I am Stephen Kent, and we will be back next week on Thursday. We'll see you then.